What a beautiful day. We get to wrap up 1 Peter today. And uh, so we've been going through uh, the books of 1 Peter, and we'll start 2 Peter next week. Um, and just kind of digging into what Peter has to say to the church as they were going through their struggles because of their faith in a, in a world around them that really didn't want anything to do with Christianity or Christ or God. They wanted to live their own way that they saw fit. And when you set an example that goes different than that, then conflict arises often. Today, I think as, as Peter begins to wrap everything down, he brings us to this conclusion of the letter, and he wants us to understand how the grace of God can help us through all of our life struggles and all the difficulties that we might face. The true grace of God should govern our relations with other people as we go through the spiritual battles and the warfare that come against us. This, this true grace of God should also um, govern our attitudes of our mind in the midst of all that. And finally, it should strengthen and enable us to stand firm in our faith. So we're going to dig right in because we've got a lot to cover this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to begin at verse 1. If you have your scriptural journals, this is great. Pull those out and get ready to take some notes because we've got quite a bit to dig into. To begin with, the true grace of God, it really should govern our relations with, with others, believers, in light of the spiritual battles and suffering that take place. So he begins here in chapter 1, or chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Peter gives this example of to the elders. Here's a new term that he has in the book, but he's wanting them to understand that there are leadership, there are shepherds, there are elders in the church who are trying to oversee and lead the people as they gather. So he says, So I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Now Peter has this hope driven, um, gracious aspect of what voluntary leadership is all about. And so he wants them to know that, that the faithfulness of the people within the church will depend largely upon the extent of how faithful the leadership is within that church. And if the leaders aren't faithful, then those who follow won't be faithful either. So Peter now speaks to the elders among his readers, and he gives three reasons why he has authority, one, to bring them this charge and exhort them to live the banner which he wants them to live. First off, he is an elder, but he's not just an elder. He is, there's a, a, an article in there called the elder is really what it stands for. He is the elder of these churches. He's not just a fellow elder. He's one who has a little bit more authority because he has been shepherding multiple congregations as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Some have suggested that Peter is saying that he understands from his long experience of shepherding all these other churches that maybe they should pay attention to what he's doing. We know that Peter was that guy who often would open mouth and insert foot when he was around Jesus quite a bit. But it has taken his own struggle and his own ability through the grace of God to overcome his own personality, that now he has the capability and the full assurance of God to help lead the churches as they're going through this struggle. He may be referring maybe to a time in his reinstatement there in John chapter 21 when, when Jesus you know, is walking beside him along the sea after the resurrection and Peter has already denied knowing Jesus three times. But in their conversation, Jesus kind of reinstates him by telling him, do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter continues to say, well, you know I do. You know I do. And he says, feed my 
sheep. Feed my lambs. He's putting him in a position to be a shepherd, to be an elder. And so he's going to speak to us from that point. And what the elder was being asked to do, really it pales in significance to what Christ had to do and what he had to suffer for them. Peter is an eyewitness to all the things that Jesus did. And so he wants to share with them that even in their suffering, they can stand firm and and be faithful to Christ and live out as an example, it's going to be good. It's a way that to glory, in essence, for, for both them and for Jesus. Peter had seen the promise that he would share in Christ and his glory. Jesus told him, you'll get to see this one day in John chapter 13. And it was a part of his prayer in John chapter 17 when Jesus was making this final petition before God to, to care for those that he was leaving behind because he wanted them to one day be able to stand in the presence and to see his glory revealed as it ultimately is. And so for the elders to lead the church, it is to lead us in a manner that we will one day be able to see the glorious face of our Lord and Savior, but they've got to step out in the manner in which they live. And so he's exhorting them, he's challenging them with this hope-driven, gracious, voluntary oversight. So let's look at verses 2 through 4. He said, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So he wants them to begin with by shepherd willingly. We need to put laziness aside. Our world is often filled with just lazy people. We want to sit back, relax, and take it easy. Nobody wants to get up and mow the yard. Nobody wants to go to work every day. Nobody wants to do things. They just want to relax. That's part of our nature. We just want to sit back and do nothing. But he says you can't do it that way. He says you cannot be lazy. And so any task worth doing is really worth doing well. If you're going to be a part of any organization, then you ought to be willing to take part in that organization to make it successful, not just say, I belong. And if someone is called to be an elder, the task at hand is then caring for the flock of Jesus. Ultimately, he's the chief shepherd, but he's allowing the eldership within each of the congregations to care for those little flocks and to meet their needs, and to provide and protect them. If someone is called to be an elder, an elder should not require any compulsion. They shouldn't feel obligated. They should feel it's a desire, it's something that they want to do, and a willingness and a passion to go out and to serve. They shouldn't have to be a taskmaster. They go out and just rule with a hard fist. But in love, they should go out and they should oversee the work, because after all, it is God's work that we're caring for. They need to have a self-initiative, not under any kind of compulsion. And so one of the qualifications to become an elder, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, is the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the, offer of over, the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now that word overseer is the same as a shepherd, the same as an elder, it's the same position. If you want to become a leader within the church of God, It's a noble thing to do, but you've got to desire it. You can't just have to do it because someone's pressuring to take this position. The shepherd of the flock, not because they feel they have to, but because they want to. 
But Peter goes on, he says, you also need to shepherd not just willingly, but you need to shepherd honestly. You need to put away any kind of motive for greed or financial gain or whatever it is. Apparently, the eldership at this time in the church, in the early history of it, some of the elders were actually paid by the congregation to leave their work so that they could focus on taking care of the people within the church. But a problem began to arise that some of the elders rather wanted the money and not the work. That seems to be a habit that a lot of people have, isn't it? We'd like to get paid for a little amount that we do. And so he tells us we need to make care of how we do this and not to be greedy. But he tells Timothy, tells, Paul tells Timothy in chapter 5, a first letter, verses 17 through 18, he said, let the elder who rules well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. The problem might arise when a paid elder might only function as an elder because he's being paid to do that work. And so it's his job, and it's not his passion. And Peter wants the elders in these churches to know you're leading, but you've got to lead with a passion, not just because they're giving you something for it, not because they're forcing you to do this, but you've got to have the desire to want to put yourself in a position where people are going to look at you and judge you for how you are behaving in your character. So there's a stark contrast to this of what do I get out of it. He, he says with this eagerness, it pictures a zeal and enthusiasm for the job. There's this inward delight when you see things that are happening and you're being used by God to accomplish things within His church to enable them to grow and become strong. There's this heartfelt pleasure of being able to give rather than receive. But there are also, Peter says, to shepherd humbly. And so he tells us that in verse 3 there, that we need to put away all the pride, all the lust of power, all the greed for position. And the Greek word that he uses there, it's a word picture of a high-handed autocratic rule acting like a petty tyrant, just domineering over those who are under your charge. I mean, we've seen that. I mean, a lot of times that's portrayed in some of our war movies. There's always that one general who doesn't really care about the other people. He just barks his orders and everybody has to obey. That's not how an elder leads within the church. They don't bark orders and everybody obeys. They set the standard themselves by how they live. And in care and in watchfulness, they entreat the people to follow them as well. In Matthew chapter 20... Verse 25 through 28, Jesus tells them the difference between leadership in this world and leadership in His kingdom. And so listen to what He says. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So if we're going to shepherd humbly as leaders, we've got to prove to be examples to the flock and how that means. How we want them to live is how we live. So Paul would even say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The elder leads and shepherds by example. 
not by just bossing people around and ordering them to do this and to do that. They're to be godly models for possible life change in the people that they're leading. But he wants them also to know that they need to shepherd hopefully. And so he tells us this in verse 4. Now, when the chief shepherd appears, he says, that's going to be Jesus. There's something different about this. So as in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, when Peter speaks here of Jesus as being the chief shepherd, many people thought that he was remembering Jesus and how he put himself in a position as a shepherd, as the good shepherd of the people, and how he cared for them and, and provided for them and how they just followed him wherever he led them. But it's because he was specifically paying attention to their needs. There is a difference between the elders and Jesus, however, because he is the chief shepherd and they are just kind of like under-shepherds. They are his sheep, and so he follow, they follow him, and in turn, they're leading others who will follow ultimately Jesus as well. And you receive this unfading crown of glory, we're told there. I mean, that's what they're doing. It's not about the recompense right now. It's about something that's in the future. Having this, this one crown of glory that's never going to fade, that Jesus is going to honor them in the future, Maybe not necessarily right now. So upon his return, Peter informs the elders here that the reward is going to be for their faithfulness in their leadership. Some people like to take a position of power because they want the immediate response and the immediate reward for it. But that's not going to happen if you're going to be an elder in the church. If you're going to shepherd the people in the flock of God, he will reward you for your faithfulness down the road. He mentions this crown of, of glory, this, this crown of, uh, uh, that they're going to receive upon their head. Now, there are two different types of crowns that are mentioned within the Bible and really in, in history. There, there is the Stephanus and the diadem. Now, the Stephanus was a crown that we would see like we're getting today with the Olympics. The Greek athletes, they would receive a crown, which was basically a, a laurel wreath or a flowered wreath that they would be able to put upon their head, and they would wear that as, as a victory. Sometimes he would put that upon a general as he's returning from war. But the problem with that Stephanus crown is it was made out of material that would wither and fade and eventually just turn to dust. The diadem was made out of something more precious than that, out of gold or silver or jewels. And it had a longer lasting value. But even between these two crowns, the crown that Jesus is talking about and that Peter is responding with is not a crown that is that Stephanus or the diadem, but it is a crown of glory that will never fade, that is everlasting, that will never disappear, never go away, because they will be put in positions as being heirs to the throne of heaven. That's significant when we think about this. Now, the crown that the chief shepherd gives the shepherd elders is, is not made of some material that's going to fade. It is this crown of glory. But Peter doesn't want to stop right there and just talk to the elders. Now he wants to speak to younger men. Now, as we look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5, he begins by saying, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, there's that word younger, and it's been translated a variety of different ways. They're trying to figure out who is he speaking to? when he's saying these younger men. Now, one view of this word has its official meaning, 
like we see in Acts chapter 5, verse 6, it calls them out that they need to select some younger men to be, as some commentators would say, deacons in the church. And so it puts them in a position. So maybe he's speaking to the deacons in the church, these younger men, who aren't quite possibly old enough or faithful enough to become the position of elder and a shepherd, and so he wants to speak to them. Others view it as it insinuates that these are just young men in life, plain and simple. Another way to view this, the third way is speaking of all members in general, because that word can be used sometimes of both male and female. It's just younger people with a gender-neutral aspect to it. And a fourth understanding is this. Because of the way the word is written, it can also be translated newly born. So newborns. We talk about Christians being born again, right? So maybe as we are being a newborn into the faith, that we need to look to those who are more spiritually mature as to how we ought to live. So he says we should be subject to the elders. Now that's the same word he uses over in chapter 2, verse 13. And it's sometimes a thought of that we can lose self-control because we want it our way, and when it doesn't go our way, we just kind of go crazy with things. But we've got to learn to be subjected or submissive to the elders. When the spirit of the elder is loving and caring, the natural response then is for us to say, yeah, I'll follow you. I mean, that's the way it was in any relationship. When you know somebody loves you, when somebody cares for you, when somebody wants your best interest in mind, and they then will say, will you follow me? And we'll say, well, yeah, I know who you are. I know that you have my interest at heart, and so I'll let you lead. But if somebody is only out for themselves, and they tell me to follow them, it's not happening. Because they're probably just going to use me for their gain and for their benefit. But if the elders that Peter is talking to, and if they begin to set an exemplary lifestyle and a passion for the position that God has placed them in, to love and to care for the sheep or the flock or the congregation, then those of us who are under them should willingly just follow because we know that they care for us. But then he transfers once again into his conversation here in chapter 5, verse 5. He begins by saying, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Now Peter uses that word, clothe yourselves. It's a very unusual word. We just read clothe yourself when I look up that. And so, you know, I got dressed this morning. You know, I, I put on my socks and my shoes and my pants and, you know, my shirt. I didn't do it in that order, though, but, you know, I, I, I did clothe myself. But if you want to look at the underlying word that really is there, the word that is presented is this word that's that's It's a word that is used to describe a specific item of clothing. Matter of fact, it's such an unusual word that Peter has even created his own way of saying it, and it's not found anywhere else. But what he's taking from it, the root of it, is this description of a white scarf or an apron that was used to fasten, to tie, anything that was tied with a knot. And he really is describing the apron that distinguishes a slave from a free man. 
So when he says, clothe yourselves, he's basically saying, put on the garment of a slave, of a servant. That's what you're supposed to do. Now, our English translation doesn't cover that. But when you dig into it, we find out Peter's saying, you guys need to be servants. You need to clothe yourself with the attire of somebody who is going to wrap that around his waist and begin serving others. Ah, there was a time back when Jesus was alive on earth in an upper room and the servant had not been at the door to wash their feet and the disciples, they all just come bustling into the room because they were hungry and it's time for dinner. And what did Jesus do? He recognized the servant was not around and so he went and he got a basin of water and he got that white cloth and he tied it around his waist and he got down and began to wash their feet. And what is going through Peter's mind is, you're not washing my feet. (laughs) And Jesus says, I've got to do this. Well, then you're going to wash the rest of my body. Jesus says, well, if a man's had a bath, he doesn't need to be washed that way. You just need to have your feet washed because they're dirty. Peter has learned to be that servant. And now he's saying not just elders and not just young men, but he's saying to all of us, each one of us, we need to be willing to take that towel, to tie it around our waist, to get down on our knees, and to be the servant of one another. So clothe yourselves, he says, all of you, with humility toward one another. See, he's also quoting from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. And he's kind of clinching down his, his statement here about what humility is all about. God has plainly revealed his thoughts and his intentions about those who are filled with pride and that they are set up in opposition to him. Matter of fact, that word that opposed, that God opposes the proud, it's a military, a military term that is used for an army that is drawn up for battle. Did you catch that? All right, so what's happening is, is we see that, that pride calls out God's armies against us. So we need to clothe ourselves with humility because God opposes. He puts the armies of heaven against those who want to be proud in their own life. He prefers that we are humble. And so pride and humility, these these are two antonyms, and it's really good when he places them side by side because they are exactly opposite of each other. Pride says, I should be served. Humility says, let me serve. There's a big difference with all this. The proud man has this inflated estimation of himself, and he thinks that he is too proud to stoop down and do anything for somebody else, but everybody should be at his beck and call and serving him. And that then sets you up against God. I don't know about you, but I don't want Him coming against me. I want to be on His side, right? I mean, isn't that how we want to, when we get picked in the playground, we want to be on the person we know who's the best player. We want to be on their side because they're going to, they're going to lead. No one wants to go against the one who is the best. But yet we do that every time when we allow our pride to get the best of us. And we don't surrender ourselves in humility. 
Now, the second thing that we're going to discover in this passage of Scripture, that the true grace of God should govern our attitudes, even in the midst of the spiritual battles and the warfare and the suffering that takes place there. So we're going to look at verses 6 through 7 right now. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. We need to learn to be submissive to the sovereignty of God. He's the one in control, and yet we, we think we're going to be the ones in control. A more literal translation might be, permit yourself to be humbled. We look at that, humble yourselves, but you could actually say, allow yourself to be humbled. So in other words, we're going to allow the circumstances around us to take us down a notch or two. Because it's under the mighty hand of God. The persecutions and the suffering that the church was getting ready to experience, if they had not already been experiences, experiencing, was under God's hand, under His control. He was permitting certain things to happen to the church, just as He does today. But He's still the one that's in control. And He's still the one who can free us from that suffering but He allows it to take place because it helps develop the character, the faith, and the strength in us as we go along. See, we need to remember the final outcome of all that. He says is, He may exalt you. So He's going to lift us up. He's going to put us in a position. It brings me back to the picture of Jesus there as He's addressing His bride in Ephesians chapter 5. And He presents her to Himself as radiant as beautiful, without stain, wrinkle, blemish. In essence, it's not what the bride does to make herself look beautiful for the groom. It's what Jesus as the groom does to the bride to make her look beautiful for Himself. He was the one who will exalt us. He is the one who will lift us up. Peter can not only appeal to the Old Testament Proverbs 3.34 here, but he also appealed to the promise that Jesus made in Luke 14.11. He says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled... And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So our future hope rests in what Jesus is going to do, not in what we're going to do. It doesn't matter how good you think you can behave or live within this world. It all depends upon Jesus and what he does in our lives, and he is the one who exalts us. What we need to do is be prepared to be humbled in order to be exalted. And that fulfillment of that promise of exaltation, we may know about it in this life, but it's not going to come until He returns. So until then, we've got to hang fast. So He says it's important for us to cast our anxieties upon Him because actually He cares for us. There in verse 7, you see, anxiety is, is the heart's attention to, to things that, that draws us in different directions when we know that we should be someplace else. We want something, and so we begin to, to worry and fret about it. It's the same word that anxiety is the same word that is used about Martha when Jesus was coming to her house, and she is worried or anxious about the meal. Yeah, she'd like to sit there at the feet of Jesus like Mary was doing, but no, we've got to make sure that the, that the food is prepared and the, the table is set and everything's done and, and she's not doing anything to help. And so her worries and her anxiety got the best of her. And what does Jesus tell her? 
Martha, Martha, you're worried about it all. This is insignificant. Mary has chosen something better. <coughs> when your mind is full of anxiety, <coughs> that's precisely the time to remember that we have a Heavenly Father who cares for us, and He will carry us through that moment. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we saw that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to His purpose. But you can't say all things. Even the hardships, even the struggles, even the things that we want to avoid, going through those, God has got the ability to use that for our good. It's all for His glory after all. Jesus taught us to consider the lilies of the fields and the birds of the air. And you look at how God addresses them with splendor and majesty. And they don't have to worry about what they're going to eat or what they're going to drink because He provides for them. So why are we worrying about things on a daily basis? Know this. We're in a spiritual battle. We're used to fighting against flesh and blood. But the battle that is at us in Christ is one that is beyond the physical. Now, now physical may take place in it to some extent, but it's a spiritual battle. It's one that is unseen because it works even into the heart and the recesses of our minds. And so he tells us we need to be sober-minded there in verse 8. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he, he prowls around like a roaring lion, what is he doing? Searching, seeking someone to devour. So we need to know our responsibility to begin with. We need to be sober-minded. Now, this isn't the first time he's used that term, sober-minded. He spoke about it in chapter 1, verse 13, and chapter 4, verse 7. We need to be able to think clearly before we make any action. And when you are not sober in your mind... We make foolish decisions. We do things that we normally would not do in our clear thinking, don't we? So Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. That word watchful is reflecting maybe on Peter's own experience when he wasn't paying attention to Satan, and Satan sifted him. Matter of fact, if you go into Luke chapter 22, verse 31 through 34, Jesus has this conversation with Peter about this very thing, about his lack of being watchful. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded. Did you hear that? Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, in other words, uh, you stumbled. And when you turn again, you get yourself back right up and go the right way, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me.
we need to understand who the adversary is. Because the adversary is the one who is coming after them. Well, hold it. Them is us, is it not, as we read? There is an adversary. There is one who is anti-justice is what the compound word actually means. They're after us. He's, he's trying to seek to destroy us. Right? And so what was happening as Christians were being persecuted was unjust. And what else might be expected from this adversary like the devil? He's against everything that is right and pure and holy and true. He is, after all, the father of lies. The word devil is used here, diabolos. It means, literally it means slanderer, accuser. We just say devil. But if we were to translate that, it would actually be the slanderer, the accuser. The one that points his fingers and lies about you. That's who he is. In classical Greek, it meant to defame, to accuse, or to besmirch one's character. So that's his role. His whole function is to stand before God and try to make accusations against you that you are not as holy as you pretend to be. It calls to mind the devil's activity in the case of Job, where he made accusations before God about Job. Remember, he, he said he'd been roaming the world, searching the world to the ends, and he tells God, I've got them all. And God says, no, you don't. Have you seen my servant Job? God just kind of put him out there, threw him under the bus, didn't he? And Satan says, well, well let me get at him. And God says, you can do certain things, but you can't take his life. But even the devil understood something. The reason that Job was not cursing God, he says, well, God, it's because you're protecting him. You remove that hedge of protection around him, and I guarantee you, he'll just like the rest of them, he'll curse you. Accusing Job before God. And God says, give it your best. You know, now we look at this and we read in Revelations chapter 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. He's still active. Revelation gives us the image that, that Satan is still accusing us before God. He's not given this up. And even in Peter's case, the devil had asked permission to God to sift him like wheat. I'm convinced that Peter is reminding his readers of the bad things that happen to good people because in this unseen world, the devil is actively at work and doing his best to tear us down. And God has given him permission up to a point. But in your walk of faith, where is that point? How strong do you want to be? Verse 8 tells us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Maybe it may be, may be a veiled accusation of Nero and his circus Maximus where he threw hungry lions at the Christians and they would devour them in, in sport. 
But Peter's words are vividly portraying this restless energy of a hungry lion. And he's out on the prowl searching for something that he can eat. And when he finds his prey, he sneaks up on it. And one of the last things that a lion does as it's getting ready to pounce is it roars, that terrifying roar, so it freezes the prey. Just that moment to catch them off guard. But I think it should also be noted that the devil doesn't always roar. Sometimes he masquerades as an angel of light. He presents himself as something that is good, something that is beautiful, something that is holy, something that is wonderful in our lives and pleasurable. It's not something that we should be terrified of. And so we are like the bug to the light at night until we get burned. You see, now he has this intent in that he's seeking for someone to devour. That's really what he wants. That word devour... It translates a word that literally means to drink up or to drink down. It's, it's, it's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54, about death being swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your victory? It's been swallowed up because of Christ. So this hungry lion then is seen gulping down his food, swallowing it whole, and Peter uses the word someone to devour. Not anyone. Someone. Who is he looking for? He's looking for the person who is not sober-minded, who's not thinking ahead, who's not trying to be like Christ. He's looking for somebody who he can catch off guard, who's not watchful and who's not alert. So if Peter says, be sober-minded and be watchful, Satan may not toy with us. He has no control after all. But we need to be, become strong in our faith. And so we move on, and Peter says, beginning in verse 9 through 11, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> well, again, we need to know our responsibility. And our responsibility is this. Just as James tells us that we are to submit yourselves to God, therefore. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. We need to do everything we can to, to go away from Satan. By refusing to deny Christ, even under the penalty of death, Peter's readers were facing the persecution because of their faith that they could boldly stand there and allow themselves to be murdered because of Christ. The idea of overcoming by resistance is illustrated in Revelation chapter 10. We've already, chapter 12, we've already read verse 10, where we see that the accuser is there. He said, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now is the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of our Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, but, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. 
we can be victorious. And the suffering that Peter's readers were about to face, he wanted them to know, you can stand firm in this. You can overcome all that's happening even when you're standing there facing your own death because of me, because of Christ. They can do it. Now, believe me, you're not alone in this. So he tells him in verse 9, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I mean, this is not some kind of suffering that's unique or peculiar to them alone. It's happening all over the world at that time. The church was being attacked, and people of faith were being destroyed and killed for their faith. He says, you're not alone. However, your faithfulness can be contagious because if you stand firm, it might incite the others to stand firm as well when they face persecution. He uses two expressions that cause us to think and pause and think a moment. The one is experienced. He says, they, they are being experienced by your brotherhood. Experienced is a business word. It was used for payment of discharges of taxes and debts for the discharge of a completion of some kind of business contract to, to fulfill it all. It also has the idea of bringing something to its goal. So the persecution that they are experiencing is ultimately finalizing the contract that they have with Christ. So if you're willing to stand firm in your faith and go through the experiences that the others in this world are doing as well, it's going to complete you in your relationship and in the vow and the commitment that you made to Christ. When you die, it's done. Contract finished. You've experienced it. But then he also uses the term throughout the world. It's a reminder that Christians live in an imperfect world. And the world in which we live in is against, not us, it's against him. And this life is the only place in which we are going to suffer. Because after this life, in faith in Jesus Christ, there is no suffering. This is just temporary. It's just minute. It's just a small part of eternity. Didn't Jesus himself warn us in Matthew chapter 10, 28, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul? Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. But we're so worried about the physical stuff. But remember, we're not fighting a physical battle. This is a spiritual one. Know and rest in the promises and the purse and the praise of God. Verses 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, he says, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, the promises of God, even though you're suffering for a little while, it's something that's temporary. God has something that's greater for you. And it kind of echoes as well what he said back in 1 Peter chapter, chapter 1, verse 6. Is this you, in this you rejoice, though, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The struggling that we're going to face is just minute compared to what eternity is all about. So here in, in verse 10, he tells us about the eternal glory in Christ. It reminds us that, that Peter is writing to them about what lies ahead, the future in heaven. And that Christians will be honored, and they'll be able to stand in the very presence and the glory of God, and they will be exalted and lifted up in 
Christ. But I like what he talks about when he speaks about the person of God here. Because he calls him the God of all grace. Now that description, the God of all grace, this is the only place it is referred to within the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is the God of all grace. And God has proven himself to richly bestow that grace upon those who will call after him. He is the God of power and faithfulness because he can restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. That term for restore is is the same word that was used when Jesus called the four fishermen while they were mending or restoring their nets. And he asked them to be his disciples there in Mark chapter 1. It's also a term that is used for a surgical term that's used for, for restoring or mending a broken bone. And so when we look at this, we think about the persecution that the Christians are going to go through, that we ourselves might go through. God is going to mend the brokenness in our lives, whatever it might be. He's going to restore us to something that is whole and complete. He's going to confirm and establish that. It gives that ability to have a strong foundation in which we can live. He says He will strengthen us. And all of this is to the praise of God because He tells us in verse 11, to Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen? It's His power. It's His authority. It's His kingdom. And we give Him all the praise Now, the final thing is this. The true grace of God is able to make you stand firm. Verse 12, he introduces somebody. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Sylvanus, a lot of times it was customary to employ somebody to write the letter for you while you dictate it. We've kind of carried that custom on through a lot of business ventures as well. And so we're assuming that Peter was telling Sylvanus to write this letter down, and then he'll take it to the churches. Well, who is Sylvanus? Well, Sylvanus is actually the Latin spelling for the name Silas. We remember Silas, don't we? He went with with Paul into prison, remember? And they were singing about midnight, and the, the walls began to shake, and the prison opened up, you know? Paul and Silas were there in prison. Well, this is the same one. And after that, we understand in church history some of the things that that Silas then went and traveled with Peter. Matter of fact, Silas was able to spend this time with Peter while Peter is there, and he's going to be the one that delivers this. This is the first time that Sylvanus or Silas has been a messenger after the Jewish council uh, the conference that met, and they decided what we're going to do by permitting the, the Gentiles to come in. He was the one that took the letter out to the churches. And so here he is with, with, with Peter at this time. And he would have been known by many of these churches. And so Peter's ministry is on display here because he says now in verse 12, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. So now often after the person would dictate the letter and the, and the writer would write it down, then the author who actually is the one speaking this would grab the letter and then in his own handwriting he would write something. And so Peter is saying to them, 
Now, Silas or, or, or Silvanus, he's the one that is, is writing this down for you, but I am briefly writing to you a little bit, letting you know this is me, and I'm the one giving the authority to it. So there would be an obvious change even in the, the handwriting structure for this. The believer's charge is this. He wants us to stand firm in our faith. Stand firm. Hang on. Don't give in. You see, all the promises that come from God are because of the true grace of God. His goodness. Christianity not Judaism, not paganism, was going to provide for them the grace of God. It was going to get them through all the struggles that they were going to have to face. The final imperative that he writes in this letter is that term, stand firm. Stand firm. There is to be no wavering, no quitting, no denying, no walking away. You hang in there. Now, you and I aren't experiencing the same kind of persecution as they were at that time. But the question ought to come to my mind, would I stand firm or would I crumble? Is your faith strong enough? That's why it's important for these elders to lead because when the flock See, the shepherds stand firm. They're encouraged to do the same thing. Then Paul sends the greetings of love from the wider ministry. He says there in verses 13 and 14, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, we ask ourselves, what is the city of Babylon? There's been a lot of discussion about the city of Babylon. Is it the city of Babylon over on the Euphrates? Or is it the one down in Egypt, in Africa? Is it the one, or is it the figurative uh, terminology that was used for Rome? Or is it the one that was used for Jerusalem? It really doesn't matter where it was. The whole thing is, there is a church there in that community, and they are praying about the suffering that's about to take place here in these churches. So others are going through all this, and he says this church, this, those who are likewise chosen, he called them chosen, he called them elect at the very beginning there in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, and he wants them to know that those who are chosen like them, most likely in Rome, have their best interest in mind. And so does Mark, his son. So now we're throwing in another individual here at the very end. Most likely, this Mark is John Mark. John Mark is probably somebody who became a Christian underneath Peter when he was at Mark's mother's house. All right. Early Christian writers state that after leaving his uncle Barnabas, John Mark became a helper to Peter who influenced him to write the gospel of Mark. So they spent a lot of time together. But he adds this little twist here at the end. Greet one another with a holy kiss or a kiss of love. Now, we have to understand what was going on. This kiss of love is a kiss that was very common in, in the greetings in that community of the world. Matter of fact, it still happens in a lot of places in Eastern world or, or in Europe. 
there is a greeting where people kiss one another on the cheek. And so a kiss on the cheek was a common form of greeting among friends, very much like our handshake here in Western world culture or our elbow bumps or whatever we're doing nowadays. Right? But it was just a common way of greeting one another in, in, in a significant way. So the kiss on the cheek, this kiss of love or this holy kiss. However, the custom began to create some problems in the church. Clement of Alexandria noticed this and he said this, Love is judged not in a kiss, but in goodwill. Some do nothing but fill the church with noise of kissing. There is another, an impure kiss full of venom pretending to holiness. So the practice became regulated and men would just kiss men and women would just kiss women because it was tending to go into a different direction. I can't wait to one day stand before God and either to be able to kiss Him upon His cheek with the love of my heart or to have Him do the same. We still know that the kiss is a very deep term of endearment. But we've got to be faithful. And so he closes everything out by saying, Peace to all of you in Christ. Often that's how Jesus would pray and he would speak about, My peace I give you, my peace I leave you. It's all in Christ Jesus. As we close out Peter, I want you to understand that we too are facing possible sufferings for our faith. It may be slight. It may be intense. We don't know. We have no clue what the next few decades might hold. But we've got to stand firm. We are not fighting a physical battle. This is a spiritual one that's beyond our ability to see. And the only thing that is going to strengthen you to make it through that is the grace of God. And we're to clothe ourselves in Him. Now one way you put on Christ is to be baptized into His name. You surrender to Him. Submission. That's what Peter's talking about. And it can take place any time. Friday afternoon. And a young man came and we talked. And he's fighting some spiritual battles as well. Finally got to the position that he, he didn't want to fight on his own. So Friday afternoon in cold water up here in the baptistry, he was baptized. We can heat it up for you if you'd like. But you've got to clothe yourself with Christ because there's no other way that you're going to face the battles and the struggles of faith without him. But it's your decision. I can't push you into it. Not under compulsion. You've got to desire it. Do you desire to have a relationship with Jesus? We're going to stand and we're going to sing together.